please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is presented by the Space Camp Explorers Club, a new way to support the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp. Members of the Space Camp Explorers Club gain exclusive access to content, behind-the-scenes stories, and members-only swag. To learn more, visit SpaceCampExplorersClub.org. When you're in the thick of doing something, your main focus is, okay, POTUS needs this information, this data, I got to get them this, and you're kind of in the middle of it, making sure you're getting the best information to the present decision makers. I will tell you, I mean, the first time you walk into the Oval on business and you look up at the ceiling and you look at the Resolute desk there, um, it, it's kind of hard not to take a breath and, and realize where you're at from a history standpoint. It's not something a lot of people get to do. And if you don't appreciate it, I think you're really missing out on the best part of it. Peter Marquez is the head of space policy at Amazon Web Services. He served as a space policy analyst for the United States Air Force, director of special programs for the U.S. Department of Defense, and as director of space policy for the White House's National Security Council under President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama. In his spare time, he was a consultant for the Netflix comedy series Space Force. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this extraordinary individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore this time. And I'll let you know what I find. grew up in, uh, I guess at the time it was a farm town, a little farm town in California called Gilroy, uh, which is uh, known as the garlic capital of the world. Uh, so that's, you know, somewhat close to Santa Cruz, just on the other side of the hills. So they're in the, in the South Valley Bay area of uh, California. And my parents told me from a, like really young, um, I was into space, but I, I my, I think the, the memory for me when, um, when I first was like, okay, this is this is what I want to do, um, was April 1981 uh, during the first uh, space shuttle launch, um, STS-1, uh, and uh, my parents put me in front of the TV, and you know, you remember the, the early space shuttle flights, the whole thing was painted white, there wasn't the orange external tank, and so the whole thing's right. gleaming white, and just remember watching that launch, and I was like, okay, this is this is what I'm gonna do, um, this is what I'm gonna, I, I just I can't think of doing anything else. Um, and then, you know, as a, it's a funny side note, years and years later, uh, I had the chance to, you know, interact with Bob Crippen, who, uh, was the, the pilot on that flight. Uh, and I, you know, I sent him a note saying, Hey, you know, I don't, I don't want to be like a fanboy, but hey, um, <laughs> the whole reason I'm doing this is because of that flight you took. And I think his response was something along the lines of thank you or something like that. You know, it's just like, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm sure he gets it a lot. So anyway, but that's, that's how it started. So I'm assuming then that means that for a while, at least, you you expected to to send yourself to space. I think everybody does, right? I mean, I think everybody, especially at that age, um, wants to go to space. I mean, it's one of those things where it's, you know, what do you want to be? A fireman, an astronaut, uh, you know, one of those things. And it's always on the list. Right. Um, so so definitely, um, definitely always wanted to, to fly. 
And that sent you to George Washington University? So I had a couple of hard choices to make um, as to where I wanted to go to school. I had narrowed it down. I had been accepted to Pepperdine, and uh, I'd also been accepted to GW and a few other places, and I had to make a choice. And I'm not sure it was the right one. Um, I went to school in D.C. because I thought I was going to do politics. But if you've ever had a chance to see the Pepperdine campus, it is in Malibu and overlooks the ocean. And uh, I'm still not sure I made the right choice. (laughs) (laughs) Your career worked out fine, but it would have been a nice, nice few years. (laughs) Would have been nice to, you know, hang out in in Malibu for a little while. But uh, yeah, so I went to GW uh, and did the uh, the six year plan. Uh, Stayed there for undergrad and then did uh, graduate school there. Right. (laughs) Did uh, did you attend space camp? I did attend space camp, um, and that that was just an, an absolute blast. Um, and and I, I do remember in my class, I had people that were huge space nerds like myself, and then others who just kind of had a passing interest. And everybody at the end of it was just, I mean, everybody was friends, and everybody stayed in touch for a while. And this was, you know, way back in the day before email, so we'd write each other letters and. Um, you know, the, our whole our whole crew stayed together for a while, so it was really just a great time. Your master's degree is, is in space policy. So how did how did the shift happen from astronaut to policymaker? I was really good at history and really good at at, uh, at social studies and, and political science, uh, and my math grades were kind of starting to get stagnant. So <laughs> so it was my mental capacities chose the path for me uh, as to what I was good for. You know, as they say, a, a person's got to know their limitations. I, I knew where mine were and they were not numbers. Um, <laughs> but uh, on the policy side, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's been more than I could have dreamed of. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with the route that things went. Yeah. After you left university, you uh, were with the Air Force. Were you in the Air Force or were you just uh, an employee of the Air Force? So I was civilian the whole time, so never uniformed, active duty. Uh, so uh, Air Force civilian uh, and then uh, over in the Office of Secretary of Defense for a little while um, working there. So, uh, yeah, never, never uniformed. I don't think I could have asked for a better education than what I got at the Pentagon. Um, I had an extraordinary amount of luck with the people who were my bosses there. And to go back now and to see what they've all done, um, I've just been, I mean, they talk about making your own luck, um, but I think at a certain point there really is just luck luck. Uh, And I lucked out from my time there because I was able to do everything from you know, requirements, you know, what, what what do we need the space systems to look like to the acquisition part? So how do we go and build them and buy them to the operations side and all the way through the policy side? So the whole life cycle. But I was lucky to have, um, you know, one of my first jobs in the Pentagon was for um, a Lieutenant Colonel John Hyten, who is now the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and I've had people like that throughout my career who I didn't know it at the time, but they were lieutenant colonels and majors, and they've gone up to bigger and better things. And I've had the just the distinct, you know, real pleasure of getting to learn from some of the, the big heavyweights in the, in the industry. From the Secretary of Defense, you ended up in the, the Department of Defense. Uh, you were a director of special programs. Can you tell us what that means? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I wish I could tell you everything it means, but uh, then there'll be a knock at the door and uh, <laughs> we'll never hear from me again. They'll probably take you too, so I don't want to do that. Um, yeah, so um, the, the special programs activities, so I was over on the policy side, so that meant we were in charge of the operational special programs. Um, and special programs can range from everything from things that you know about, so like a, a B2, um, and then can range to things that uh, are unacknowledged, things that we don't 
we don't discuss or even disclose that that exist. Right. Um, so, I like to say that I had uh, I had the best toy chest in the world. I had the best toys, and everybody wanted them. Anyway, it was fun to share toys. So I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> From there, you uh, joined the National Security Council at the White House. You were the director of space policy. Uh, that started in 2007. I, I don't want to throw any shade on any previous jobs that I've had, but I will tell you that the jobs that uh, and the duties that I had while I was at the White House were, were probably b the, both the most demanding, but also the most fulfilling. So while I was there, um, I was in charge of national security space policy, overall management of the space policy process for the White House. and. Um, was essentially the, the you know the, the president's go-to person on on space issues. Um, so it was um, well the the analogy I like to use is if you have any skiers in your audience, there's there's a term in skiing called a no-fall zone. Um, you know there's you know green, blue, black diamond, double black diamond, and then there's sort of extreme territory. And in some of the extreme territory, there is an area called no-fall zones, and that means if you fall down something terrible is going to happen to you, so you better not fall down. Right. Um, and what I call the time at the NSC is it's a no-fall zone. Um, there, there's a lot at risk at the NSC, and it's, it's a no-fall zone. And it was it was extraordinarily satisfying to work with some of the very, very best people in the world on their subjects, on crisis issues, long-term planning issues. It really was probably the best job anybody could ask for. Um, it, it'll kill you. <laughs> it's, it's nonstop. Uh, but you really could not ask for more. And I just had just really great people that I worked with and I, I loved every minute of it. Train like an astronaut and get lost in space at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Exclusive family weekend programs are available to try your hand at piloting the shuttle and is based on both the past and the future of space exploration. Pilot the space shuttle and attempt to land safely with the museum shuttle experience. Your team of up to four participants must work together to land the shuttle and bring the crew safely home. Museum admission is required. Find out available times, prices, and more at rocketcenter.com and get ready to blast off. I consider kind of the new commercial space activities to be like you said like like you're inferring relatively new like you know 10 to 15 years right um and we had been really focused on supporting that that industry um because we saw it coming uh we saw kind of post-cold war um you know entrepreneurial activities just really starting up uh and we put a lot of emphasis and focus on that and dedicated a very lengthy section into the uh, into Obama's 2010 policy that we were working on at the time. And I put a lot of focus on, on the commercial part. And um, the commercial section in the policy actually comes first out of everything uh, in all the other sections, uh, because that's what we thought was going to be the next big, you know, one of the big drivers for the, for the U.S., for technology, for economic reasons, for, you know, just quality of life, uh, and of course, national, national security. So. It was just getting started, and I think we just wanted to, to embrace it as much as we could and help it out. And the, the shuttle stopped flying like 2011, and so so definitely that stuff was on the mind. Yeah, that was one of the more painful things I was involved in, um, you know, because we, we started the conversation with how did you get into this, and, and the, the kind of the, the keystone moment was watching, you know, the first shuttle flight, and then, you know... Uh, 
I don't want to say how many years later, but it was several years later, <laughs> to be at the White House and be in that room when you're making a decision to kill the shuttle. Right. Um, that's that's real painful. That's real painful to sit there and not just you know not just at a personal level like hey this is this is this is me and this is why I got into this business, but knowing that there are thousands of other people just like you who who got into this business because of what what that program symbolized the the idea that of that program uh, and then of course there's the physical literal part of it that that's a lot of jobs and a lot of people that are that are working on that program and you've got to find something else for them to do right so that was just really it, it, if there was another option we would have taken it from there you went to orbital so orbital actually no longer exists it was uh <laughs> i think it was bought out by northrop grumman so um it uh it was and i guess still is uh, a uh a government contractor commercial uh satellite and, and rocket company uh building satellites and building rockets so i thought i'd stay in the same business i thought i might know something about it at that point not <laughs> sure if i still did but uh i was introduced to, to profit and loss which is something we didn't ever talk about government <laughs> <laughs> after orbital you were yeah. vice president uh for global engagement at planetary resources planetary was was an interesting um uh, time in my in my career uh, a good friend of mine called and said hey i need a i need somebody to help work policy and, and government work and uh lobbying for for a company i'm starting up i said that's great what what are you doing and he said I'm, i want to do asteroid mining and it's one of those things where you pull the phone away from your head and stare at the phone <laughs> and it's just like what what did i just hear do you want to do what Met, met with the team and and they there were a lot of really good strong technical people there a lot of good people from from JPL um who who were working on the program but for me from a policy standpoint and uh the part that really intrigued me was they wanted to do something with policy and law that had never been done before you know is it is it legal to go and take material off of an asteroid it had, that question had been asked but nobody had ever answered it so how do you go about doing that and you know, it's it's kind of in the weeds, but I think for for a lot of listeners, but it really does get to the heart of of exploration in space. If you're going to go out and do things that we want to do further on the moon and in Mars and 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 further on, you know, we kind of have to live off the land like we've always done, and when we explore even here on Earth. Uh, and so, what does it mean to live off the land, and how do you recover those resources, and what does it mean to have property on those, um, you know, a property and ownership of those resources? So it was an interesting question because where it led for for the future of humanity, and that's what really got me interested. Is okay, here's here's a tricky policy and, and legal question. Let's go let's go press to test and see what happens. From there, you became a, a partner at Andart Global. They're a consulting company. Yeah, so I helped found the company with a, a friend of mine who uh, I worked with at at, uh, at Planetary Resources. After seeing a lot of things that were happening in the commercial space community and in venture capital, what could we do to help uh, people and investors find the right space companies? And then for the space companies that we thought were good, how could we help them find the right investors? Uh, and so we worked a lot on the venture capital and private equity and also on the support of uh, companies looking to to grow. Um, and that was really just a, an amazing amount of fun. Worked with a lot of really good companies, worked with just some amazing investors and helped get people tied up together. While you were there, you also had kind of a fun side job. <laughs> you were, oh, you, yes, yes. <laughs> you were also working on the side for Netflix, right? I still am, actually. But yes, so I uh, <laughs> got a little side gig with, 
with uh, with with Netflix. So there's a there is a TV show on Netflix called Space Force, um, and I got linked up with uh, the amazing and just um, you know uh, I guess I guess in the in the pantheon of of of, of comedy great uh, television uh, producers and writers, Greg Daniels, who did The Office, and, and some of his writing team that had worked on The Simpsons and a variety of other movies, and just it got linked up with them and have just had an absolute blast working with that team and the writers and, and, and Greg and the rest of the production staff on putting that show together. It, it, has, it has been one of the most fun things I've ever done in my career, and I'm sure a lot of people are going, well, well duh, you're working with the people from The Office, of course it's fun. <laughs> At least to me, what was really great is that sitting in a room with them, they were just as much interested in the space community and how things worked as I was about the entertainment industry. And we just would compare notes like, well, how does this work? Well, how does that work? <laughs> well, what, what happens when you're doing this? Okay, well, if, if, you know, how do you tape this and how do these special effects work? Okay, well, how does this rocket work? How does satellite communications work? You know, and it was just fun to have this back and forth, um, you know, no egos, no nothing. Um, and, and they don't have egos anyway. These guys are just phenomenal to work with. Right. Um, so it's just, it's just been really just a blast to, to be involved with that and, and just really top-notch professional folks on that, on that show. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, what it's like to do space consultations for like the president and the government versus a space consultation for, you know, Steve Carell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're pretty much the same. Make sure it's funny and, and tells a story. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, in both cases, you're trying to tell a story and get, get the, get a point across uh, and do so effectively. Uh, the differences are, of course, the outcomes you're trying to achieve. Uh, you know, the outcomes on the Space Force TV show is we're trying to make people laugh, trying to make people entertained. Uh, you know, trying to, to make it an enjoyable uh, thing that that resembles space uh, is somewhat plausibly tied to um, what we do in space. You know, a lot of the conversations are, okay, we, we want to do this. Could, could you actually do this in space? And, and it's like, well, okay, you could do this, but for the sake of television, let's just push the envelope a little bit and get you give you a little bit of poetic license. Right. No, no poetic license in the Oval Office. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is... It is. Tell me what's going on. Give me the facts. Um, you know what? What is the national security implication of what we're doing, or what is the economic and job impact of this decision that you want to make? They're both about storytelling. One, one is about trying to make people feel a certain way, and the other one is completely the other side, which is the left brain and give me all the facts and figures, and let's make a good, sound decision based on those. You just you just try to try to do your best in both places. At least for me, I always took the time to sit back and appreciate whether I was sitting in you know sitting in the Oval or sitting at my desk uh, at the White House or you know sitting with the writers and just taking a step back, going, "Man, I'm I'm sitting across from Greg Daniels and he's asking me questions and he's interested about space, and all I want to do is ask him questions about the Simpsons in the Office." <laughs> uh... You joined Amazon Web Services as the head of space policy. What does Amazon need with the Starship, I guess? <laughs> you know? Exactly right. Yeah. I've been doing this for over two decades now. And, and at a certain point, you, you're like, eh, okay, I, I think I know what I'm doing. Um, and while I was at, you know, running uh, the shop at my previous gig at, at Andor, I, I got a call from, uh, 
from the Amazon guys and said, hey, we're looking to, to do things in space. And, you know, I was familiar with what Jeff was doing at Blue Origin. Uh, I was familiar with Project Kuiper, which is the 3,000 plus satellite in low Earth orbit for, for communications. But they said, no, we want somebody at AWS, which is Amazon Web Services. And I'm like, what? What is Amazon Web Services doing in space? And and they gave me a briefing and said, look, um, we're doing some things, but we actually want to establish a whole new group focused on, on space. Um, and and so that was just an interesting discussion for them uh, and for me to see where their long-term, you know, kind of strategic thoughts were on space. It was really just a, a, an eye-opening experience. I mean, to, to be kind of at, at your own shop and have no bureaucracy and, you know, work, work with a very small number of friends and then, you know, get an offer to go work at a extremely large global company. Um, you know, it's, it's a very different setting. Right. Uh, but I think the opportunity there uh, at Amazon was just so compelling to, to make a huge difference uh, with what people do and how they use space. It's part of the reason I decided to go there. Um, it's really tied into a lot of other things that people are doing and, and I saw an opportunity to help a large number of people in a way that I couldn't do when I was running my own shop. As part of AWS, there's an aerospace and satellite solutions division. Is that kind of yeah. where your position there sort of lives? Yeah, exactly. So um, my one of my friends, I, at some points I, I almost feel like Forrest Gump. You know, I just run into all these historical <laughs> situations not knowing what I'm doing. Yeah, a minute ago um, you referred to Jeff Bezos just as, as Jeff, like he was just a pal and <laughs> it was just great. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's... Um, so one of the people I met um, early in my Pentagon career was a, uh, a Major uh, Clint Crozier. And Major Clint Crozier grew up to be Major General Clint Crozier, who worked with another one of my friends, General Raymond. General Raymond is the head of the U.S. Space Force, and, and Clint was his two-star in charge of helping actually stand up and create the, uh, the Space Force. So I had known Raymond since he was a colonel. I actually gave him his first tour of the White White House back in the day when I was working there. Um, and Clint for a long time. And Clint, they brought in to, to lead the, the team at the Aerospace and Satellite Group. And they said, well, we need a policy guy to help sort through kind of the global political environment. So let's uh, let's go find someone. Uh, so I've got the great pleasure of not only working with some really world-class space experts, but also getting a chance to come back and work with a good friend of mine. As the head of space policy, what's happening there uh, that you're helping them with? The way I like to think of it is because of what AWS does, and it's essentially cloud service, compute, um, you know, AI, machine learning, all these other tools that we provide through the cloud services. We're, we're kind of the glue uh, that is holding this next generation of space capabilities um, and putting putting it all together and giving people the opportunity to, to use space in ways they, they couldn't use before. You know, it, it used to be that in order to do anything in space, it was a government doing it because the cost was just so ridiculous to get into space, to build a satellite, all these things that, that, that you and, and your listeners know about. Right. Um, and what what the compelling thing for me, getting back to, you know, why, why would you go to a huge company like Amazon when you're happy doing your own thing? <laughs> what was compelling to me is that you, with, with what Amazon's doing, I can now go to two guys two women you know in 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 ghana who have a great space idea and give them the tools and for literally dollars they can now have a global capability that now scales uh and and they can provide you know a space data 
capability just with with an app and a good idea. Uh, and so for me, um, and, and this was something that I learned early in my Pentagon career was, you know, you can spend a lot of time and a lot of money building the most perfect thing uh, and the most perfect capability, but really it's not until you get out into the field and see what your junior officers and enlisted guys are doing with that tool, do you really understand its true capability? And for me, that's where space is now with the commercial community. We really have not seen what space can do yet uh, and what its true potential is. And what I want to do at Amazon is give people the tools for me to sit back and really be amazed with their bright ideas and what they're capable of and seeing space meet its true potential. What sort of things do you see in that future? You know, in, in the near term, while the majority of uh, you know users of space are still here on Earth, what we're looking at is a lot of environmental things. How can we support agriculture? Um, how can we get, you know, get the world fed? Uh, we're working with companies that are tracking, uh, you know, forest fires. Uh, can now use space assets within a matter of minutes to tell somebody that a fire's broken out. You know, whether that's in Australia or you know the, the Pacific Northwest, or out in California, places where we always see fires. Um, and get somebody there before it turns into a huge raging, you know, um, issue that we had, you know, just last year in Australia. Right. What can we do for disaster monitoring relief? Uh, what can we do um, for communication and just being able to get people data so that they can be, you know, educated in every corner of the globe or have access to telehealth and telemedicine? Um, so for me, in the near term, it's all about quality of life. What can I do to make space useful to make things better for people on Earth? That's really the, the, the enjoyable part for me is just getting a chance in my job because now I still have a, a global portfolio and just meeting people from all over the world who just have these ideas that I'm just, I'm just astonished by and just astounded with all the great ideas that people have. And once you give them the tools to, to make those, those ideas real, um, it, it's, it's really satisfying. We're kind of in a renaissance of, of space right now, I think. Uh, but that also means we're sending up so many more things. These internet yeah, sa internet yeah. satellites are, are there are thousands of them uh, for each of these companies to make these things work and things. Do you, do you have any thoughts or, or opinions on, on, I guess, just, I don't know, space traffic jams or over overcrowding our atmosphere in satellites or, or you know, dangers of space debris? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge question. Uh, and if we get to, you know, if we get to being able to really provide space services to everyone in the world and provide that increased quality of life and standard of living, uh, we're, going, we're going to have to continue to put things into space um, and utilize space. There's just no way around it. Right. Uh, but what that leads us to, though, is this discussion that's happening um, between governments at the U.N., uh, happening inside of governments, happening within companies on this concept of, of space sustainability. You know, how do you make space so that it is an environment that we can all continue to use and, and you know, use it peacefully, use it in ways that, that meet those goals that I'm talking about. You know, I, I, a, a good friend of mine, and actually one of my former professors uh, at GW, uh, Henry Hertzfeld, who's you know, a world-class space lawyer, and, you know, and, and Henry has studied the the uh, Outer Space Treaty, uh, just you know, um, all the, you know, even including the negotiating language. Uh, but he does an excellent job summing up what this what the Outer Space Treaty really means, and it's something that I agree with. 
Um, if you sum up the Outer Space Treaty into one sentence, it is, don't do stupid stuff in space. <laughs> and that's it. Just don't do stupid stuff. Right. Um, you know, but, but, you know, and he says it tongue in cheek, but, you know, the, it gets to that next part that you're asking about, which is, okay, well, what, what is stupid stuff? You know, what, what is okay to do there and what is not okay to do there? Uh, if you're putting up thousands of satellites, there is a way to do it responsibly. There is a way to do it that other people can, can use space. Um, and so how do we start having that conversation in between governments and in between industry? Because as you alluded to in your earlier questions, we're, we're at that point where industry is outpacing what governments are doing and the amount of money that is being spent on the commercial side for space activities. You know, I was part of a discussion that the UK government held maybe three or four years ago now. And one of the things we were discussing was there's going to come a point where instead of these UN discussions where it's all just member states and, and governments talking about how we organize and utilize space, you may end up with some companies sitting at the same table with these governments saying, I have just an equal stake in what you're doing here because I have this many billions of dollars at stake. But more importantly, I provide services and capability that people rely on for food or for data or for connectivity. The rules that we make here will affect millions and billions of people on the ground, and I need an equal seat at the table. So we're you know, taking it back to this whole policy discussion. We're at a really interesting point in the space community, what it means to be a policymaker, what it means to be a space diplomat, I guess. Um, and and is, it, is it something that is still only reserved for nation states? Or are we running into something where the commercial community needs to have an equal seat at the table? And if you do that, what does that mean for the system that we've had for decades now? Um, so it is just a, it is a fascinating problem. And I don't know if it's really a problem. I'd probably say it's more of an opportunity to get to that point that you alluded to, which is, how do we keep using space if everybody wants to use it? Train like an astronaut and get lost in space at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Exclusive family weekend programs are available to try your hand at piloting the shuttle and is based on both the past and future of space exploration. Pilot the space shuttle and attempt to land safely with the museum shuttle experience. Your team of up to four participants must work together to land the shuttle and bring the crew safely home. Museum admission is required. Find out available times, prices, and more at rocketcenter.com and get ready to blast off. If Jeff Calden was like, yeah. hey, you want to be on Blue Origin? <laughs> if you could go into space today, would you still go? I tell him I got my go bag in the car and I'll be there in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> This, like any profession, has to be something that, that you love. And if you do love it, um, give it everything you got. Um, I, I would say don't leave any opportunity, you know, unplowed. Try to find as many people as you can uh, to, to talk to who've been in this business. As, as I mentioned a few times in our discussion, I was just absolutely blessed with the high quality of people in leadership positions that took me under their wing when I was in my early 20s, mid 20s, even my early 30s, and just said, look, this is how this is how things get done, or this is how you should be thinking about things, or maybe give you some advice. So early on, I would say, try to find some mentors, try to find people 
to help you figure out where you want to be in this tableau of space community, where you fit in, where your thread fits into making this story and try to understand where you can provide value. There are so many great people that I've met and there's so many great opportunities that I would tell somebody who's starting out. Just talk to as many people as you can, find out what the, what the best thing is for you and then, then go for it with everything you got. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'll let you know